Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are about to listen to part two of our discussion of Sorry. Please do go back and listen to part one if you haven't already. We've already talked a lot about the show in general, but also specifically about the episode we're looking at, which is Series 3, Episode 5, It Never Rained in Those Days. We've also already done a full biography on Ronnie Corbett, so you've already missed that. But if you're up to date, then no worries. We're going to jump straight in and start talking about the other actors. So enjoy. Well, well, I tell you what, but we've we've talked a lot there about the character of Phyllis. What about the actress Barbara Lott? Yes, Barbara Lott, who who is let's face it, best known for playing my mother in Sorry. I only knew her from this. I must <laughs> yeah. say, I didn't know her from anything else. I think that's probably true of most people. Um, nothing particularly uh, dramatic in the backstory here. Her her father worked um, at Ealing Studios. Um, he was some sort of executive there. So she was around film from a young age. I think she appeared in things as a child. Uh, went to RADA and then just was an actor on lots of different and relatively anonymous things, careers, stage and screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she she's one of those people who did get a bit of a blossoming at an older age, playing slightly harder older women. Her mm-hmm. mother characters perhaps found her niche there. Yeah. And her... Uh, first kind of big regular sitcom role, or biggest TV role, really, was in Rings on Their Fingers. I don't know that. Which was a sitcom from uh, right in the very late 70s about a, an unmarried couple. Oh, I think they get married in the series. And she played the mother of the daughter, uh, the, the, the right. mother of the... So she was a semi-regular, oh, oh my God, mother's coming around kind of character. The, she was the mother-in-law joke. Yes. And she's not as bad as in Sorry, but she is that slightly kind of, well, who do you think you are good enough for my daughter kind of character. I only hope, Sandra, that Oliver's own present to you was more thoughtfully organised. Well, actually, this year we're only giving each other token presents. Token? Yes, something small to save money. To save shopping. To save shopping. I think you were probably right the first time, dear. Listen, are you criticising my son? And who criticised my daughter? Present for you, Mrs. Bennett. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And then, like, a year later, after that, was Sorry. And uh, that was it. She's only ten years older than Ronnie Corbett. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. (laughs) And then, uh, after Sorry, you know, obviously she was, well, in her 60s by then, and didn't do a lot after it. She did have, a again, a sort of semi-regular role in 2.4 Children. Yes, I do remember remember her being in that. Yeah. But yeah, I think kind of specialised in later years playing that slightly, uh, you know, Harridan Mm. (laughs) mother character slash aunt character. Yeah. But yeah, interestingly, in Sorry, in general, I mean, apart from Ronnie Corbett, everyone else in it don't really know from anything else particularly well. They're all most known for this. And even the the odd, just like, oh, someone turns up for one episode and one like particular plot relevant thing. It's it's never like oh look it's so and so from from mm. one foot in the grave or something like that you know it's it's what about the father he's the third main character in this yeah um and to say you've got so few characters he's really underused I think um, particularly yeah. in the earlier series I, I they they pull him in a little bit more later on give him a bit more to do 
I still don't feel like I've got a handle on on the father character, like what he's for, what what anything much about him really. Because yeah, his his role sort of changed. His relationship with with the mother character and with Timothy kind of it, it was a little bit unconstant. The relationship mm. between Timothy and his mum, I've got, I've got a really good handle on that. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, the, the father figure kind of floats around a little bit. Well, I think in the early days he's obviously henpecked by the wife as well. But he's on her side, so Timothy will do something and he'll say, oh, listen to your mother, or, you know, language Timothy, all that sort of thing. And it develops later on uh, in a good way, I think. I think uh, that it needed it in that they sometimes will kind of work together to yeah. get the the upper hand or you know the the husband is even more and more bullied and sent to the shed uh, and, yeah. and all that sort of thing and they become victims together of this um harassment and that works better i think it gives them some common ground yeah but that's not quite how it feels in the first a couple of series mm. and but he also really does very little in the first two he basically says language timothy um, and that's about it. Why don't you want to go? It's a present, a treat from me. Second honeymoon. Uh, tell the truth, Timothy. The first one was no great shakes. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, consummation-wise or otherwise-wise? I mean, what do you mean? There was barbed wire all over the front. Mother's front? <laughs> no, the prom. Hitler swept into Europe. Well, he won't be doing that this time. Well, that was the phone you wore, of course. Yeah. Before your mother really got stuck into me. <laughs> so it's interesting what you said about he, his character changes through the series. So in the first series, the first couple of series, or the episodes I watched, I've written down the word dementia a couple of times. And it seems like he is absent-minded and he asks, when's dinner? We've already had dinner. And it, it just feels like, okay, that he's this kind of empty vessel type of a character. But yeah, by the end, and you talked about this in the last series... Timothy gets a, a girlfriend who eventually, the, you know, the, the, the plot of the series is that he's going to marry her. And there's a sort of unspoken conspiracy between Timothy and Sydney to try and get around Phyllis so that this, this can happen. Phyllis is trying to undermine and stop the relationship. And, and yeah, Sydney is helping him. Sydney's on his side. So there's clearly something there. So the character does change. Mm. Character evolves through the series. Yes, and I think it needed that. As the mother gets worse, he needs to be more on Timothy's side. Interestingly, in series six, like right from episode one of series six, I was like, oh, they're doing a lot more with the dad here. He's got, he's just got lots more lines and he's being more involved. Mm. That's interesting. I'm glad they've done that. I think that'll work. And then in episode two, I think it is, he goes to Australia to see his brother and he's not in the next three episodes. (laughs) So I was like, oh, right, okay. Maybe maybe they just had to get all his contracted uh, words in one episode. (laughs) Was there a reason for that then? Because we'll talk about the actor then. So we talk about William Moore. Was was there a reason for him needing a leave of absence? I mean, there must have been. I, I don't know what it was because... I, I tried to figure it out with just with timings and stuff uh, and of something else and it didn't didn't really add up. So, well, yeah, he must have just been doing something else. I don't know. So what's his background then? A, a bit like Barbara Lott, similar age. What had he done before? Same thing, really. A sort of fairly anonymous <laughs> working actor, just just struggling along. He was yeah. a regular in Coronation Street for a while, uh, for a mm-hmm. few years, I think. So um, yeah, that was it. He did do some sitcom things, but it was always just like, you know, a couple of lines in one scene. It was never any regular. So again, Sorry was his big regular sitcom role. But his, to be honest, his his big sitcom connection is that he was married to Molly Sugden. Ah, right. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, they married in 1958. 
and remained married until his death. Uh, but then Sorry made him a bit more well-known. And in fact, in 1987, well, while Sorry was still on, he did a sitcom with Molly Sugden called My Husband and I. Okay. Tell me she's playing the queen. <laughs> <laughs> no. I can imagine Molly Sugden as the queen, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was just it was just a you know an older couple that that was it as far as i could tell the, the nature of the it's another week title yeah i've got myself a little job but i still have to take the glasses back after your retirement party well, i know that but i'm bored i'm bored silly so you keep saying what sort of little job well, i knew you'd be against it who says i'm against it? well you're not for it though are you well i can't be for it can i or against it till i know what it is what is it Paperboy. <laughs> but I, I even looked, I thought, oh, maybe my husband and I, maybe that clashed with series six of Sorry, which is why he wasn't in it. But the dates don't really add up, so I'm not, I don't think so. But yeah, that's it, really. I mean, Sorry was certainly the thing he was most well known for from his career. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yes, yeah, so they're in the attic. And then we cut, we cut to a new scene. We're outdoors. Timothy's all dressed up. Looking a little bit shifty. He's got, he's got a blazer, pocket square, cravat. Really, yeah. really overdressed. A 1950s dandy. <laughs> I thought he looked like a... He looked a bit like, you know, George Galloway. He looked like somebody had made a gnome of George Galloway. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, basically, he's out on the street stalking some, some girl that he's seen, which, again, a little bit creepy. Yeah. To be fair, he's always like some woman that he's like, oh... She's nice. I like her. It does. We don't often see him actually stalking someone. He's just not good at striking up a conversation or, or whatever. It's shy, mm. tongue-tied. We don't usually see him just outright following people in the street. Yeah. Uh, and also, we've had no backstory really for this character. It doesn't really get much of a payoff. It's all a bit unnecessary. It's just there to make him look pathetic. It feels like a bit of a, a loose end in this particular script. Which, yeah. to be fair to the writers of Sorry is not particularly the norm. There's, the scripts are pretty tight uh, and, and self-contained. It just feels like filler in this one yeah. where it's like, okay, look, we need, we've got to fill five minutes, so let's have him prattling about uh, embarrassing himself, trying to get this woman who's clearly 30 years younger than him. Yeah. Well, 20, I guess, for the character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot younger. Yeah, and we, get, we, we then meet... Um, he meets up with Frank and he goes to have a pint with Frank in the pub and Frank's encouraging him, trying to get him to, you know, approach this woman and have a conversation with her. They're talking about how women need a bit of romancing. And so Timothy completely misinterprets this and decides that he's going to give his mom as a birthday present a bit of romance and invite yeah. Edgar Horsfield to a birthday party. Now, this seems like a weird thing to do. Very weird. We've already seen, <laughs> we've already seen that, like you said, she doesn't give a damn about uh, his, his dad yeah and she's wistfully thinking about what could have been if she'd have got together with this other bloke so what we will do we'll invite him round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah which i mean apart from why is the son going i want to give my mum a nice romantic day out <laughs> yeah he's invited this guy over there while his dad is there too <laughs> it's not like yeah <laughs> it's not like oh i'll give her a day away from dad but his dad doesn't seem to mind like no dad, doesn't care he, he, he doesn't <laughs> seem upset by it he doesn't seem like his nose is out of joint he just kind of goes along with it <laughs> yeah again this is kind of in the early series where the dad is rather than much a prop just kind of in the background rather than hasn't much of a character of his own but i the, the scene that we we build up to now in which phyllis sits at the table while the the family present her with gifts 
so that they can be berated for being terrible gifts. Mm. You know, the dad gives her some bath salts and she's like, great bath salts like you do every year that you just got from the garage. That's fine. That's great. Yeah. He's not made any effort. She's allowed to be angry at that. Yeah. The daughter gives her some chocolates. Coffee creams are a favorite. Oh, no, I don't like the coffee creams. We've set that up beforehand in the previous scene. So that kind of works as a gag as well. Yeah. But she's just being horrible and yeah. nasty and Awful negative. About it. Even when she was in, looking through the photo album and going, oh, good good old times, she's still completely negative about it because she's going, oh, these were beautiful times. Oh, look at those two. They were horrible. I hated them. Yeah, she's looking... She, she, she says... She's looking at the photographs and she says... At these two girls that she was hanging around with, she says, Lord, what sluts they were. <laughs> they never put a foot wrong, of course, but I knew. <laughs> that is pathological. She's a pathological liar. And that's what I found interesting about this scene where uh, Edgar Horsfield turns up. Because obviously what she said to Timothy, oh, Edgar Horsfield, yes, he loved me and he was so handsome and, and witty or whatever. She's, I just assume she's making that up. She's just lying. So mm. when Edgar Horsfield turns up, it's like, oh, no, this is going to be trouble. But he then kind of says, oh, silly filly, and she giggles like a yeah. schoolgirl. So it's like, okay, there is actually some truth to that then. That's like, the his- that, that was a genuine thing. That was proper history back there. Uh, and so I found that interesting because as we'll come back to later on, she reframes what happens in this occasion to suit her purposes. She is a pathological yeah. liar, and I don't think she's even aware that she's doing it. Mm. But yes, Ronnie Corbett turn- turns up in a kind of barbershop quartet uh, <laughs> boater yeah. outfit and, you know, does a big presentation of this great gift that he set up. Mm. And she's just so negative. It's like she's doing anything she can to ruin the day. He turns up, he sings happy birthday. Like, what are you doing? You can't sing. That's basically what she says. Oh, we all know you can't sing. Stop singing. Yeah. Your clothes look stupid. He brings up a picnic basket. She goes, that's my picnic basket. What are you doing with it? We're going on a picnic. We're going to have a lovely day out. No, I've got a headache. Like, she just can't just accept that something is yeah. there. She just has just, to destroy it, whatever it is. She has to break this. Anything. Because he's because he's made such an effort and she wants to undermine that. But but she's done it. He's done it for her. So why why is she not? What does she want from him? Exactly. Yeah. Like if, if she found out he'd planned all this for a girlfriend or something and he's trying to. That's basically yeah. every episode. That's usually yeah. what she's doing. Trying to ruin his time with a girl but then he's, he's done all this for her and he kind of looks like he's actually made a success of it with the edgar horsefield thing mm-hmm. uh, and of course that falls flat straight away but again as a sitcom plot the next sequence works because he set all these things up and just one by one they all kind of go wrong edgar yeah. horsefield it turns out is a boring old fart rather than a kind of sexy witty guy he's a colossal bore with his little ukulele and his anecdotes yeah. The place they go to, which was just used to be this romantic place, is now a housing estate. But then, so then they go to the the lovers' lane, and it's a sewage works, and then they, <laughs> you know, and then it rains, so they can't have the picnic. That's sitcom. That's comedy. Everything that can yeah. go wrong does go wrong. And 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 in that scenario, it's, it's okay for her to be angry and discomforted and not happy, and oh, my day's ruined. Yeah. But because she makes it so much about him mm-hmm. <laughs> being a terrible, terrible person because he's failed to organize this properly, even though like largely not his fault, it just becomes negative and nasty again. A pair of sparkling eyes. <laughs> <laughs> 
All this is your fault, of course, Tim. And if I must go mad, I'd rather go mad at home, so kindly row faster. You get to pass Maxis with a whip. I wanted to murder Mother when I was four. Four? Well, Lady Whisper, whisper. Nasty, dishonest little boy. Here's a, here's a quote I wrote down when she's just... I can't even remember what the exact context is. She's just berating him. She says, that's the last time I breastfeed. Princess Diana or no Princess Diana. <laughs> that's, a lovely, yeah. that's a lovely early 80s reference. <laughs> it's very much an 80s thing. But yeah, the, the intimation being that she breastfed him for too long and that's why he's useless as an adult. I don't, I'm not quite sure what yeah, her and, reason is. And that's his is. fault. Yeah, yeah. And then the sun comes out, so they're like, right, we're going to make the best of this. We're going to go out on the boat. We're going to have a lovely time on the river. And this is a rule of sitcom, by the way. If there is anybody on a boat at any point, yeah, someone's they, going in. someone will fall in the river. Yeah. Or in this case, jump in, in a sort of sense of frustration. And this is another, not inconsistency, because it's consistent, but the, something that just doesn't make sense with the character. Timothy stands up to his mother all the time. He is yeah. constantly fighting against her, making snarky comments, having these big moments of frustration where he throws mm-hmm. the marmalade out of the window or like jumps in the river and th- or throws the picnic basket in the river. He's constantly standing up to her and gets nowhere. But again, it's just a, a character that doesn't fit. If he fights against her, how come then he capitulates so easily? Yeah. And in the first episode where we really establish the character, he has no backbone at all. He's so manipulated and emotionally manipulated by her that even when she's not doing anything, he's terrified and he has to go and call her. Yes. Because she's ingrained it in him. And we kind of lose that over time. He's no longer constantly at her beck and call. So that means that she has to be even more direct in how involved she's getting. And it makes it work even less. (laughs) Yeah, it makes it it harder and harder to squeeze comedy out of. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So our big punchline here is he he jumps in the river and then he he kind of pops up and like oh my god it's that woman I was ogling at earlier and I've embarrassed yeah, myself. Which which like why is she there? <laughs> so we we we've seen this girl earlier that he was stalking 15 minutes ago and then the next time we see her she just happens to be on a boat near them and Timothy goes under the water for 4 seconds comes back up and his parents have gone and suddenly this girl's there. Yeah. And that seems to be the only payoff we get for that whole bit earlier. Yeah. You know, and there's a bit in that earlier where he falls over and a doctor comes over and goes, oh, is everything okay? I'm a doctor. And he's like, no, no, it's all right. I'm fine. And then that that ends. It's just weird. (laughs) It's just like, there's no joke to it. Well, just to finish the episode off here, the final coda to the episode, we're back in the attic where we started. And Mm. Phyllis again is looking at the photo album and she's now talking about what a happy, lovely day she's had. Yeah. I think that's the nicest birthday I've ever had. What's going on there? Has she completely rewritten history in two hours? Or did she genuinely have a good day being miserable and berating everyone? (laughs) Yeah, she, yeah, as a pathological liar, she's reframed it already to fit her narrative. Edgar was so witty and my husband was so jealous because he was paying attention to me, which obviously we've seen did not happen at all. We had a lovely day. Oh, look at our family all happy together. And in 10 years time, when someone's looking at her pictures, she'll say, oh, I remember that day. It was beautiful. But for her to reframe it so quickly and to someone who was there, and the fact that he just kind of goes, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, brilliant. That's, like, that's the pathological bit, it. isn't it? Because, you know, if you got, if, you know, if I was going to tell a lie, I would think, right, here's the truth. Here's the lie I'm going to tell. Here we go. Whereas she's not. 
she's not telling a lie. She's telling the truth. She yeah. that she believes what she's saying. Yeah, it's insane. And then the very last kind of little gag is that Timothy knowingly offers her a coffee cream, and she, you know, letting her guard down. She says, "Oh, my favourites," and then, "Oh no, now we know she was lying earlier." She she deliberately lied to hurt Muriel's feelings. Exactly, which again reframes that what happened earlier. So it wasn't just like, "Oh, my daughter doesn't know me and doesn't know what I like." The joke is, "My daughter's got me a present, something that my I daughter's like. got me a present which is thoughtful and specific to me, and I don't like this, so I'm going to undermine her." Yeah, what a horrible, horrible person. It's so funny that you just said horrible, horrible person because in my notes, which I am holding up to the Zoom camera right now, I've written awful, awful woman at that very moment. What I wrote down is not something I'm not going to say on on the podcast because we try and keep it fairly clean. Keep it PG. Yeah. But also in that moment, because Timothy has got the better of her, she realizes she's, oh, no, you've discovered my lie. And that is extremely rare to the fact that I can't particularly think of another occasion when it happens where he gets the better of her where she is revealed Mm. or or kind of has even the slightest comeuppance and that's the other problem with this character that she's so horribly horrible and is never pulled up on it it doesn't there's no obey the rules of sitcom does it you know you you, someone who's that evil she always wins she always wins and she yeah but she just some of the things she does are so horrible that though no one would ever speak to her again. They would just walk out on her. You see how the dad might just kind of like, oh, I don't get involved. I'm in my shed. Uh, yes, yeah. dear. Okay, dear. Timothy, you can't quite get away with that because she's so directly hurting him. The mm. fact that he wouldn't walk away, especially with the support network that he has, the friends, mm. he has friends, he has the sister who's trying to get him away from it. So I don't quite buy that. But just that she would have anyone else in her life at all is unbelievable. Yeah. And I just want the sequel of Sorry, where it's just this old woman in a care home and her <laughs> children never visit. And one of the carers goes, oh, that's horrible. She's got kids and they never visit. That's so cruel. And then they speak to her and they go, oh, right. No, that's why. <laughs> and then they just leave her there. And... Wasn't that waiting for God? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree, I agree, and I, and for me, that is the biggest problem with this is that she's she's too unpleasant. She she's so unpleasant that it, it it's kind of it, it makes me uncomfortable. And you yeah. can't sit and then relax and enjoy a comedy program when you're uncomfortable. Yeah, it's just not, and I think even with such an extreme character, you might be able to get away with it if she was the foil every week. If if every week she the end result was, yeah. oh, she's been found out. Timothy gets out his way. Timothy's trying to get away for a weekend away with. The, the boys and she's trying to stop him but in the end he manages to do it and he gets away and she's stood at the doorstep going harumph that's all you need and i think you get away with it mm. and and then you just have these little moments where he you kind of have nice moments between them you realize that he's he's comfortable in there perhaps he's a little bit coddled but you kind of understand why real life out there in the real world is scarier so he just stays where he is I think you could easily do that with these same basic characters, but maybe that's all been done. Maybe it's been mm. done before, you know. The the only other interesting element from a casting point of view is Wendy Allnut. Ah, yes. So we talked about in the last series how he's he, we have this arc of the girlfriend who he's going to marry, and this is um, Wendy Allnut plays her. Now, I recognised Wendy. Yes. 
because she appeared in something we've talked about before. When we talked about Dear John and we met John's wife. Ex-wife. John, sorry, of course, yes, because he's a divorcee. That's the whole point. John's ex-wife, Wendy, was played by Wendy Allnut. Yes. We weren't particularly complimentary about her performance. No, I, exactly. I remember <laughs> I remember being very uh, disparaging about her performance. And I, you know, I stand by that. The episode I saw from Series 6 of Sorry this week, she was definitely better. Yeah. You know, she, she was a much better performance. But, but you, having watched them all, you know, what, what, did you, what did you make of her? Well, before I should get onto her in Series 6, I should mention that she already appeared in Sorry in the very first episode. Ah, okay. As the love interest for that episode. He, uh, a, a different character, though. Yes. And then some years later, they bring her back uh, as the love interest for uh, the whole character arc for the Series 6. But interestingly enough, in Series 7, so at the very end, again, mm. towards the end of the series, for, a, sort of say, a three-episode arc, we bring in a different woman. Um, and I'll talk about this in just a second. But she had also already previously been in the show. Okay. And apparently, from what I've heard... They went through old episodes to try and find someone like who who worked really well with us, who had good chemistry, and we'll get them in. So it's not just that, oh, well, she's a good actor. They specifically looked through actors they'd already used to go, who can we use? Deliberately. Yeah, which is just like, I appreciate there's not too much of a continuity thing going on when you use the same no, actors. Uh, but Exactly. I mean, it's not like you've got any idiot watching the whole thing on DVD in, in, in a week and so would notice that sort of thing, really. But it just seems a weird choice. Like, there's so many actors out there. It just it feels like when you're watching BBC shows, like in the 70s and 80s, that there are about 25 actors in the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is an odd choice, but there we go. Wendy Allnut turns up in Series 6. Um, yeah, a little better than we've seen her before, but ultimately, it's the same problem. It, we, we are expected to accept that they've kind of fallen in love. Okay, yeah. we'll go with that. But then everything that comes between them is the mother. And so we never get a chance to explore what their relationship might be or what his failings might be or what her failings might be because all we're dealing with is the mother. So, you know, as a character arc, what does it add? But it, it, it's clear that the, the writers made a conscious decision to go, we can't just do some kind of same yeah. old, same old plot stuff. We need something that's running through. Which is an interesting decision, like way back then in the, what that, 87? That they were doing that, because it just wasn't the norm at all. But Series 6, Series 7, if you think about, I mean, Only Fools and Horses is a fairly contemporary show. And, you know, those characters changed, didn't they? And they, you know, they got into relationships as, as the years passed. Yeah. Because you can only do, you know, if you've done five series, what, you've run out of things to say. You have to yeah. change the circumstances. I think there's certainly a truth to that, yes. But it's not even like, oh, we've introduced a new character and so that's we've added that in. Her as a character isn't really developed much. It's just for, for Timothy to respond to, really, to give him some motivation. Also, we find him standing up to his mother more and, and, and all that sort of thing. And you could certainly argue that that's character development, it's character growth, yeah. I guess. But it feels just more like they know they can't just do the same thing over and over again. And he, it's no longer about him being worried about his mother or what she might think. It's just she is an obstacle to be hurdled or to, to, to get around in some way. And, it, and that's when it becomes just totally out of, out of all reality. <laughs> yeah, no, I get you. To, just to round this up, I want to sort of tell you what happens at the very end of the show. Yeah, go on then. Now, I don't know how quite how clear they were that this was going to be the end, but they, they give it a closer. And, and I know Ronnie Corbett mm. wanted to do more. But the series rounds out quite nicely in that he gets the house, 
he kind of finally wins. The, he goes off with the girl instead of his mother. And his mother basically disowns him. You know, like she finally gives up because she's tried everything she can. But she, but she doesn't reconcile herself to it. She disowns him. Pretty much, yeah. And then what happens in the very last episode is that out of nowhere, Muriel... And, and I'm not being out of nowhere like at the start of this episode, like halfway through the episode. Yeah. Like, Muriel goes, oh, by the way, uh, I got this guy staying with me. I was We were pen pals when we were kids and now he's turned up. He's really boring. He's actually like really, he's a big loser. And then we sort of meet him and he's a silly comedy character. Yeah. So then at the end, they bring him round to the mum's house and she starts mothering him and oh, he loves I it see. because for whatever reason, he that's what he wants in life. Well, <clears throat> I'll be getting on my way, Mother. <laughs> I'll be, you know, getting off. It's her right hand you've got to watch out for. <laughs> Who is that? Oh, never mind. Now, for supper, there's kedgeri. Oh, good. I love leftovers. <laughs> oh, that's my boy. <laughs> Just like that, she's like, oh, Timothy, you can go. I've got a new son now. She doesn't literally say that, but that's basically she just, she doesn't care anymore. Like she's replaced him like a dead goldfish. So That feels fine. like how I used to end my essays at school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's even then she doesn't really get her comeuppance. She, we, don't, we don't get this satisfying final shot of her sat, you know, in the kitchen on her own talking to the walls because everyone's abandoned her you're thinking of gene boat and bread aren't you yeah that's what, yes exactly that's what i wanted i wanted my final denouement where he puts her right i mean gene boat looks like mother Teresa compared to <laughs> phyllis lumsden yeah at least there was you could see where she was coming from for a large yeah. part in the episode that we talked about there was one example of something that i want to bring up you know, people say sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. I fundamentally <laughs> disagree with that. Yeah, I yeah. think sarcasm can be, can be done with class and skill. I say that the lowest form of wit is the fake Freudian slip. Oh, now, yeah, 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 so, yeah, okay, yeah. So he, they're in the pub and uh, he's just been, uh, a woman walks in and he's, he has a good old look at her. And then he turns back to the bar and he said, half a pint of bitter and a pack of cheese and onion legs. I mean, crisps. Yeah. That is, that is crap there is there is quite a lot in that in in the show yes well i'm now going to keep an eye out in future episodes i'm going to keep an eye out for the fake freudian slip and it's it, i yeah i want that to be a recurring feature in uh, in our in our podcast but it's 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 when it's so terribly done yeah like if you're going to say legs you need to find something that maybe sounds a bit like legs <laughs> we just don't do it because it's not it's not a real thing it's not a thing that happens in the real world <laughs> it is yeah you're right it's always so terrible whenever it's done uh, well, uh, one last thing I would like to talk about, which we haven't mentioned, are the credits, the opening credits. Oh, yes, we didn't talk about the opening credits. We normally start by talking about the opening <laughs> credits. What uh, what an oversight, because the opening credits are incredible. It's the most 1980s thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like they've just got hold of some new technology and they're going to throw everything at it. I think it's quite cool. It's got yeah, it's got a very it not cool computer graphics kind of feel to it's it. It's curious. It is not cool. <laughs> well, I, I I would be interested to see how it's made because I don't think it is computer graphics. I'm saying that, but I think it's too early for that. I don't know. I yeah, don't know exactly. No, it's how definitely it's not it's computer graphics, sort of but it it, it looks thing. well. Let's explain it for, for, for if people haven't seen it. So you've got this pink neon outline of of Ronnie Corbett's face. Yeah, and as the music plays, the the effect is that this 
pink neon face on a black background sort of spins, rotates on an axis backwards on itself yeah. as, as the music plays. And there's a little, like, his, his teeth, like, <laughs> there's a little um, uh, bright white shimmer on his teeth as he, uh, as he rotates. It's, it's terrible, Alan. It's terrible. It's a neon sign thing. Well, I like it. <laughs> do you think it sets you up for the tone of the show? It's got nothing to do with the show. That's, that's, <laughs> not only is it terrible, but it's not. It's it's it's, it's like it's for a different show entirely. <laughs> like I tell you what, it would work if there was one. If there was exactly that with Ronnie Barker next to it, maybe in neon green, that would be a good opening for the two Ronnies. Yeah. What about the music? How did you feel about the music? <laughs> I don't like the music and I think it's just association. So <laughs> when I heard that music, I got this sort of very low level two out of ten heart sink. <laughs> oh sorry. <laughs> now that is because music evokes an emotional response in the ways that other things don't. So I think that perhaps tells you about my memory of sorry <laughs> more than anything I've said for the last two hours. Well I I, I did want to talk about music actually because this music, although it wasn't written by him, it was arranged by Ronnie Hazelhurst. Ah, Ronnie Hazelhurst. I just thought I'd take this opportunity to, to do a little sort of spotlight, a sidebar, mm. if you will, on Ronnie Hazelhurst, because it's someone we've already dealt with, but haven't properly dealt with. Does the name mean anything to you, I guess, as, as, as a casual uh, Yes, yes. The, but I'm, not, I'm going to struggle with specifics, which you'll help me with. But, but yeah, Ronnie Hazelhurst is the sort of BBC band leader that would be in the... You know, those sort of white floor variety shows. Mm. And and I would think composed or arranged a lot of these, a lot of BBC theme tunes. He did indeed, yes. I mean, basically, uh, Ronnie Hazelhurst, working class kid, but his mum was a piano teacher. So perhaps that's how he got into music, became a professional musician. Through one thing or another, was worked live events, but also did recordings for TV, so on and so on. Ended up working as a arranger for the BBC. His first work for the BBC was on The Likely Lads. And then in 1968, he became head of music for light entertainment at the BBC. And so throughout the 70s and 80s, yeah, any music involved in light entertainment, he was involved at least in some way, wrote a lot of it. Yeah. You know, there's some really classic stuff, some really great stuff. Um, so he's particularly well known for incorporating uh, interesting ideas into the uh, ideas from the show into the theme music. So the best example is. Uh, are you being served? Which obviously has a cash till, yeah. Yeah, just a noise involved in it. Uh, yes Minister has the chimes of Big Ben uh, incorporated uh -huh. into yeah. it. And uh, one of the, another famous one is Some Mothers Do Have Them. So the, the theme tune of Some Mothers Do Have Them, I don't know if you recall it. It's really simple. It's just two piccolos, basically, just picking out these little mm -hmm. notes. But what it is, is Morse code for Some Mothers Do Have Them. Get out of town. Which is apparently right. true. I don't know enough about Moscow, but yeah, that is like not just a, an urban legend. Like that's obviously something that can be checked. Look, really interesting, creative things like that, that he would bring to stuff. But he did, he did everything really. He did Last of the Summer Wine, 
to the manor born the two ronnie's theme that was him yeah and as we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago he would he did the original theme for only fools and horses before uh before yeah. it was superseded uh, but yeah, so I thought I'd just have a little spotlight on Ronnie Hazelhurst there. Just yeah, that's good. Because we've obviously, we've dealt with... His name will previously. come up again. Just to round up, by the way, I've been watching a lot of stuff about Ronnie Corbett. And obviously this is stuff that was celebrating him in one way or another. But I have to say, there's not a bad word to be said about him. He seems to be a consummate <laughs> professional, loved by all, uh, hardworking, but also a really nice guy. And I think that's my mental image of him. So I guess it yeah. adds up. But it's nice yeah. to know sometimes behind the scenes. They, and like we talked about earlier, him and Ronnie Barker were friends. They weren't mm. alcoholics. They didn't They didn't have, you know, a secret family. It's quite rare mm. in the world of comedy. <laughs> it's, it's very nice to hear, isn't it? Like when we talked about Rising Damp, we talked about Leonard Rossiter, how he was a perfectionist. And, you know, really talented. But, but a bit of a git. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah it's, it's nice that no one's got those sort of coded criticisms of Ronnie Corbett. That's <laughs> good. Yeah, so yeah, good old Ronnie Corbett. Eh? Yeah. Well, look, so let's summarise, sorry. I think that rather like everyone else, I haven't really got a bad thing to say about Ronnie Corbett. I think his performance here is great. Yeah. But I don't like, I, I don't think the character works. And the main reason for that is, as we've said, the, the character of Phyllis, the mother is she's too much she's yeah. too abusive to to make this sustainable to make it work comedically to make it uh, to, to make the characters interact in the way they do it, it, it it's it's too far from logic yeah and it's not just that well abuse isn't funny although i would argue that <laughs> there's like yeah, something about bad taste in that um, but it, it's it creates that inconsistency of yeah, we, we 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 need Timothy to be a strong character for it to be engaging and interesting and create plots, but he has to be a weak character to be able to yes. work in this environment. Okay, here's a comparison for you. Hello, hello. Can we really have funny Nazis? Well, yeah, we can. Hello, hello did it. But if those Nazis were like actual Nazis who behaved abusively towards the people they were occupying, then that that show yeah. wouldn't have worked. Yeah, if all of a sudden like Vicky Michelle is marched off and hung um, <laughs> strung up in the town square that it just wouldn't work it wouldn't play would it <laughs> well you're laughing and, and okay okay we've we, we we might have gone too far there but but the point is that Phyllis Lumsden she goes over that line yeah she she, she metaphorically strings Timothy up every week and it doesn't work it's not funny yeah. no it's not it's just not funny. But the, to, to be fair, though, we're saying it's not funny. There's lots of things in the show that are funny. Yes. The moments yes, are funny, are. the gags work. But the whole concept is not... It's just too, It leaves a really bad taste in the mouth. I think that we talked about the cast and how, with the exception of Ronnie Corbett, they're all doing their performances, but they're, they're not known for other things. Mm. And I think it shows in that Ronnie Corbett is head and shoulders above despite he's only five foot one head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of the performance and mm. he's funny he's great he's a he's an entertaining presence and that's that saves it that's why it had seven series i think it, it to be honest it, like I, I think it does very well to maintain 42 episodes mm. as as well as it does i think that is a credit to the writers yeah they're obviously good solid professional writers why is Sorry not particularly well remembered or, or you know... It's no porridge, it's no open all yeah, hours. Yeah, exactly. Why is that? Really, the reason is, because it was doing okay at the time, it was never repeated. Ah. And why that is, I'm not sure. 
And which and it's kind of one of the things that led me to think they were just trundling along, keep Ronnie Corbett happy, keep his contracts solid. Mm-hmm. They didn't care. I don't think anybody cared in terms of the upper echelons of the BBC. They were happy to let it go on. But once it was done, it was done. Nobody cares. And there obviously wasn't a huge clamouring for it to be repeated. <laughs> it's never been repeated. I don't know about never, but certainly it's not. You know, have you ever seen it? Uh, well, no, I mean, it, it, the comparison, say, with Porridge, Open All Hours, which were both on before I was really watching television, but I have seen. So yeah. they were evidently repeated. Or what else? Keeping Up Appearances? That feels like that yeah. got repeated a lot. You know, yeah. this is filmed and set in the 80s. Yeah. But it doesn't feel it, does it? It feels earlier than that. No. It could be, it could be the 50s. Yes. yes, but, you know, not everything is of its time. If you imagine these characters... Today, you know, they're not going to be listening to grime music, are they? Well, I don't know what people in the twenty twenties do, but but the point is that it's a it's a sixty year old woman and her grown up infantilized son. They're not going to be doing, you know, they're not going to be into the new romantics in the early eighties, are they? But does that affect it in terms of repeat value? Because already when it's on, it feels a little old fashioned. Yeah, is it appealing to an audience base that? Is a bit old. Well, what about what about making a comparison with One Foot in the Grave? Because when we talked about that, we said that was fairly timeless, mm. and we, we we said that in a very positive way. But that was timeless. This is old fashioned. Okay, I understand the distinction you're making. It's not set in an older time, but it could be. Uh, yeah. uh, even right down to the attitudes of like, oh, good lord, you can't live with a woman if you're not married. That kind of thing. Yeah. Which even that feels like it should be at least ten years earlier. Sure. So perhaps that affects its value for repeats because because it's already a little bit dated. And if you're if you're programming the BBC in 1994, for example, mm. and you've got to fill up some late night schedule, do you put this thing on that looks like it was made in the 60s? Yeah. No, no, you don't. Uh, I think that's a good point. I think you might have something there. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, do go back, check out some of the other episodes, or wait until next week when we'll be dealing with something much more modern. The 21st century is hitting us here at the British Sitcom History Podcast. In the meantime, please do check us out on social media at BritcomPod on Instagram and Twitter. Check out the YouTube page, British Sitcom History, where we have further content over and above the podcast. And do rate and review us on iTunes. Always helps us out. Recommend us to your friends, all that sort of stuff. Help us get new listeners. Thanks very much for listening, and do come back next time. <laughs>